You know, sometimes when you do something as a kid, it comes back to bite you when you're an adult. Can you say amen to that? I remember my older, I have two brothers and two sisters, and um, I was at a Sears store, and my older brother was teaching his younger brother, me, how to hide in clothes racks. You know the round clothes racks where you can kind of go into the middle if you're a little kid, and uh, I did that once in Sears. I did it once because my mom caught me. Not only was she horrified, but um, I learned a very good lesson that you can scare your parents when suddenly they can't be found. You, when, you, when you've lost a child, you are overwhelmed with panic. Are you with me on that? So, of course, what I did, uh, my oldest daughter Stephanie did as well. <laughs> Uh, of course, she didn't do it as intentionally as I did it. Uh, Brittany was in a stroller, and Stephanie was going through the department store and thought it would be fun to get in the middle. And when she was discovered, of course, she was happy. She was like hide-and-go-seek, you know. She's two and a half years old, and she thinks it's a game. <gasps> Tammy didn't feel that way. Because suddenly you, you lose a child, and you get scared. Well... That panic, that separation is what we're going to look a, a little bit at today in Luke chapter 2. Because Joseph and Mary are going to lose, and I put that in quotes, uh, Jesus. But here's the irony, and I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way. Here's the irony. Because losing ha something has to do with separation, you know, that you can't find it. God gave his son to the world. That's what John 3.16 says. And in a sense, God separated himself. No longer was Jesus in the glory, but Jesus was on earth. And it's interesting that then Jesus, when he finally gets to the temple, man, he wants, he wants to stay. You've heard the story. In fact, it's the only story that we have from Jesus' infancy and those first few years about going to, to Egypt and, and all of that, all the way until his ministry. We only have one event. And let's put the kibosh on some of the stuff that says that Jesus used his miraculous powers as a kid to heal a bird's wing or his dad cut the lumber and it was too short and Jesus made it grow. I mean, that's ridiculous. And why we can say that is because in John, it says that when Jesus turned the water into wine, it was the first of his sides. And so don't believe any of the hubbub out there that Jesus was this supernatural child like a superman as a boy. No, Jesus was a typical Jewish boy. In fact, that's going to come clearer and clearer in our text. So let's look at our text. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin at verse 41. We're going to take it in four bite-sized pieces just to get the full uh, impact of it. So beginning at verse 41, it says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of the Passover. Being good Jewish people, especially the male, they were asked to go three times a year. Most poor families only went once, and it was going to be at Passover. So his parents are going to go. But this year's special, verse 42. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. Parents going up all the time. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. And his parents did not know that. Now you're like, what kind of parents? Well, they weren't helicopter parents, and I'll explain how that could easily have happened. 
But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But when they began to search for him along, among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem another day's journey, searching for him. Now, every year the parents are going up, and this is Jesus's really his, his first time that he gets to go to the feast in, in a temple. And I'll explain why in a second. But I want you to realize that Jesus is at least one of seven of Mary's children. One of seven. Because in Matthew chapter 13, we're told the names of four of his brothers. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. And it says, and aren't all of his sisters here? Now, I don't know what all means except for they meant all. So at least there were two because it's plural. So if you do the math, Jesus was at least one of seven. And so uh, Mary's probably pretty busy uh, trying to keep up with all those kids. Are you with me on that? Now, what? how many of you were the firstborn? We have one. <laughs> we have two. Did you do a lot of the parenting? Yeah. After a while, it's just like, hey, uh, you need to help me with your siblings. And so you can almost see this. So Jesus grows up in a large family as a typical Jewish boy. And his parents are going up to Passover every year. But at the age of 12 is very significant because Jewish boys were in transition from being called a child and becoming a man. And there were three things that happened. First of all, at age 12, a Jewish boy had to pick a trade. I'm going to be a carpenter. I'm going to be a locksmith. I'm going to, they had to pick a trade. The second thing that they got to do was get prepped for their bar mitzvah. Now bar mitzvah means I am a son of the covenant. That means the age of accountability goes away and you are standing before God and you recite the Torah and you say, I am a son of the covenant. And the third thing that you got to do when you're 12 years old you got to go to the temple. See, they've been going to synagogue. Yeah, they've been going to... That this is the time where Jesus gets to go to his first feast. The first time he has gotten to go into his father's house. And so, um, this feast was in preparation for his 13th, where the bar mitzvah was going to happen. So the very first fill in the blank is this. Jesus' first time at the at the feast, this is Jesus' first time at the feast or at the temple. Now, if we were to go back to verse 40, which was not part of our text, it says this, and the child, that means a little child, the word, grew and became strong and filled with wisdom. So he's growing and he's being filled with wisdom. And so it's not unlike his parents to give a mature 12-year-old the ability to either walk with his friends, walk with the men, or stay with mom. There are three groups they probably could have hung out with, and so they go a whole day's journey, and they get there, and they're like, hey, where's Jesus? You know, they've got a lot of kids at home, but they got one, and nobody can find him. And they get anxious. They get to the point that, boy, they get up, and they hightail it back to Jerusalem. So that's two days. One day going, uh-oh, he's not here. One day back, uh-oh, now let's find him. And on the third day, they find him. And where do we find him? Well, 
We're going to find them right here in our text. Let's go and, and look. Verse 46. After three days they found him in the temple. And he's sitting among the teachers. Listening to them. That's, that's important. Listening to them and asking them questions. It's a very typical way of, of learning for a Jewish culture. In the Jewish culture, you ask questions, you were asked questions, and then, why do we do this feast, Daddy? And then the, the father would answer. And so the, the child was almost programmed from very young age, growing up in a Jewish home, to ask questions that he already kind of knows the answer to. That's the way they, they taught and reinforced it. And so, and it says this, verse 47, and all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Wow, who is this kid? Who's this kid from Nazareth? And we don't even know if they know his name or where he's from. They, they just see this 12-year-old asking questions, and he's sitting, and he's carrying his weight with all these rabbis and all these teachers. Pretty cool. But I don't want you to miss this, though. And it, Jesus took on humanity with his divinity, but his divinity didn't obliterate his humanity. In other words, Jesus still had to learn. He didn't come downloaded with the Torah. He didn't have downloaded the, the Psalms. He had to learn the Psalms just like you and I do. He had to learn the Torah just like you and I do. He was very typical. So even though he's omniscient, Philippians says that he thought it robbery to grasp onto that while he had taken on humanity. And so that's why Man, he can relate to us and we can relate to him because he had to learn he had to learn the same stuff that you're learning. Jesus learned to grow in wisdom and knowledge, just like everyone else. In fact, that's the next fill in the blank. Look at he had to listen, he had to ask, and he was processing all of this. Now what's also interesting from history? Do you know who's in the and this is happening in the temple courts? And who hangs out in the temple courts? Rabbis, scribes, high priests, other priests. Do you know who the high priest is this year? Annas. The same man that's going to hold Jesus in a mock trial 21 years later. You know who also probably is there? Gamaliel, if I pronounce his name right. And who was a student of Gamaliel? Paul. Could you imagine Jesus is there and Annas is there, the high priest that's going to sentence him to death 21 years later, and Gamaliel, and who knows, Saul could have been right there too. Because this is the high, high holy day, the Passover feast. And it just kind of blows your mind that Jesus may be engaging these people. Who knows? Nicodemus could have been there. Now, they don't remember him 21 years later, but it's just interesting how God is involved in these details, but it shows that Jesus had to listen. Some of us aren't good at listening. That's me. Ask questions. 
and learn about God the Father. He had to do it. He had to learn. Now, let's go back to the text. Verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. What what would you expect to find your 12-year-old hanging with some old men, talking theology, and holding his own weight? I mean, they're, they're like astonished. And it says, And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Some of your translations say it's necessary. It's like this, I have to be here. I must be here. And the anxious parents, they finally find their lost child. And just like you, when you lose a child and you find the child, what do you do? You yell at them and hug them all at the same time, right? You're happy that you found them, but you're really upset that they, they wandered off. And Jesus says, didn't you know? You know who I am. Now, we have to give Joseph, I think we should give Joseph and Mary some slack. It's been 12 years since there's been any vision. There's been 12 years since any angel came. It's been... 12 years since the prophecy of Simeon and all, and so it's kind of like those memories of who he is just kind of faded into their background because they're raising James and Simon and all these other kids that they had and so suddenly Jesus just says you know who I am you know who I am I don't understand and that's the nugget in the text Here's the the third fill in the blank that I think is the nugget. Jesus knows who he is, right? He knows who he is. He is the Son of God, and he knows exactly who he is. Catch this, even if others don't get it. He knows who he is. And again, I love that phrase. I must be in my Father's house. Let's go back to the text. Verse 51, uh, beginning... It says this. Oh, let's pick up 50. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Here's the last fill in the blank for point four. He he grew and was submissive. He grew and was submissive. He actually had a greater grasp of reality than his mom and dad. Isn't it not tragic that there there may come a point where you know more than your mom and dad. Now, every teenager thinks they know more than their mom and dad. But this is a real case. Jesus actually probably has a better grasp of reality than Joseph and Mary. And yet... He stayed submissive to them. Well, that's humility, right? With, uh, you're at work, and you know more than the boss, and yet you do what the boss says? Well, why? You're being submissive, right? Jesus was submissive to the authority that was placed over. It was a great model. And what's, so what's our, what's our takeaway from 
this little vignette of Jesus being found in the temple after disappearing for a while. What, what's our takeaway from some of that? And, and I think it's part of the, the gospel message in general. And here's the first fill in the blank on number one. Jesus did take on humanity. Jesus had to ask questions. Jesus had to listen. Jesus had to process. He had to grow in wisdom and understanding. And guess what? So do you and I. Wouldn't it be great when you came to Christ, you just suddenly knew everything about the Bible, you knew everything about God, you knew everything about yourself, you knew everything about relationships, you knew everything about the sin, you knew everything about your flesh, you just knew it all, and therefore becoming a Christian was just easy peasy piece of cake. But life teaches us that that's not the case. We find that being and walking in the power of God is a process of learning. Sometimes, sometimes you have a great week and you've learned a lot and it's just like you walk three steps forward, right? And then something happens, your flesh comes up and suddenly you get knocked down. Was that a bad thing? Well, guess what? It's part of the process. It's about being transformed into Christ-likeness. And therefore, Jesus models this asking and, and learning and it's that side of his humanity. And that's us. I have a friend that just celebrated 20 years of sobriety. And you're like, at 27 years, you'd think it's all over, right? You, 27 years of sobriety is a long time, right? And yet, where did he find himself yesterday? In an AA meeting. Because he was struggling. He was talking about suicide. Or at least thinking about it. Because the alcoholism has destroyed so much of his life prior to getting sober that he's still in this tailspin. And yet, he's like, you know what? God's in control. I'm giving it to God. Why? It's a process. He's still learning. The moment you say, I don't need to learn anymore, not only are you stopping growing, you're regressing. And man, you're falling away from Christ. And so this hunger of learning God, learning his word, storing it in your heart, as David said, thy word have I hid in my heart because it's supernatural and it helps me not sin against you. But if I'm not in the word, I'm going to be sinning. You can take that to the bank, right? But when you're in the word, man, we have engaged the spiritual realm and that's a process. And so Jesus models it. He just says, hey, and, and others might not get it. Others may not, I mean the outside world, that you're on a journey, right? Oh, you're a Christian. You're supposed to be nice. <laughs> well, yeah, I am supposed to be holy and I am supposed to be nice. But that doesn't, is no guarantee because I'm a work in progress. And Jesus takes on this humanity. And part of the gospel message is that you've been given the mind of Christ. Do you know that? Corinthians, Paul says, you've been given the mind of Christ. But that mind has to be filled. That mind has to be trained. Sure way of getting Alzheimer's? Disengage your brain when you're 20. <laughs> Let it become mush. Watch TV, Wheel of Fortune, every day. Chances are... You're not going to be very sharp when you're older, right? 
man, Jesus shows us that even though he was divinity, his humanity said, no, I'm going to learn. I'm going to ask. I'm going to process. I'm going to grow. And that's what it said, verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom. And it's not, if you ever think I've arrived, you have uh, assurance that you have not arrived, right? You, can't, you just can't go there. Because it's not about knowledge. It's about Christ-likeness. How much Christ-likeness is in your life? In, in your relationships? In the way you think? In the way you spend your money? In the things that you watch? The way you use your mouth? How much of Christ is in those things? Number two is this. Jesus came to teach us. Jesus came so that we could see the invisible God. Tom, uh, was it Thomas? Thomas says, just show us the Father and it's enough. And Jesus is like pulling his hair out. Right? Don't you get it? If you've seen the me, you've seen the invisible creator God. So Jesus came to show us and to teach us. To teach us how to live. To get us out of our dysfunction. Talked a little bit about that last week. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the gate. Uh, I am the resurrection and life. I am the true vine. He came to teach us how to live. In fact, you have your Bibles. Just turn Turn uh, over one gospel to John. It's worth going there. John. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. Jesus is... Bless his heart. Can, can we say that? Bless his heart. He's dealing with some of these people that do not get it and are becoming adversarial. And he's, he's going to launch into to this little, little gym here. He says in verse 31... He says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, so John 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. Boy, there's a litmus test. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will what? Famous saying, truth is going to set you free, right? And they answered, we're offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How does it say you will become free? Jesus probably took a deep breath. I would have had to. You know, it's like those Geico commercials. What? Am I hashtagging? You know those? Never mind. <laughs> Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Jesus came to set us free from that stinking thinking, from thinking like the world, from acting like the world. He's teaching us the way to raise a family. He's teaching us the way to behave in a society. He's teaching us by modeling it and letting us know that the truth is going to set us free. Because the gospel says that 
you are free in Christ. That the old man is gone, that you're a new creation, and you have been set free. Number three is this. Jesus teaches us who we really are, even if no one else gets it. You may have sons and daughters and neighbors and co-workers who do not get what it means to be a Christian. They just don't get it. They think re, uh, Christianity is about rules. Or, oh, all I ever go when I go to church is all I do is talk about money. Like, well, maybe they're needed. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, if you've read the Gospels, you're going to find out that the Gospel teaches us that our true identity is in Jesus, in Jesus alone. And that's why the name of Jesus makes Satan and principalities and powers and kingdoms tremble. They tremble at the name of Jesus. And our identity is only found in Jesus. Not our looks, not our wallets, not our accomplishments, because all of those are temporal and fading and worthless. The only thing that has value is your identity in Christ. That means you've been adopted. If man, the, the one thing I wish I could do when, when you lead somebody to Christ, if they could just get their mind, again, it's the mind, this mind wrapped around the idea that you have been adopted into God's family, that you were on the outside and now you're on the inside. Now you're a co-heir with Christ. Now you have access to the Father. If you could truly understand that you've been adopted and that adoption came in love, that you're a follower of Christ, that you're a new creation, now we're getting somewhere. Are you with me on that? Because that's our identity. We all have last names, right? You identify with your last name. When I was growing up, it was a cool thing to be a Wilson. Everybody on the block wanted to be in our family. But there could only be so many people unless my mom and dad had adopted. And there was another family in the same block. Everybody did not want to be in that family. What was the difference? Identity expectation, where you come from. Jesus knows who he is, and you have to know who you are in Christ. Otherwise, the world will take you down a slippery slope. It will take you down a flood of, of stinking thinking and progressive Christianity. Your identity is only in Jesus. And our world is crumbling pretty fast, and there may become a time where Woo! You know, the only thing that we have is the clothes on our back, a place to sleep, and maybe some food, and guess what? Jesus. Your identity in Christ. That's already happening in these persecuted countries, especially China with their surveillance system. Because you get scored because they, the government knows exactly where you go each and every day. And you get points taken away from you or points added to you if you're a good follower of the state. But if you're a follower of Christ, they take things away from you. They may take your job away from you. They may take an opportunity. Your kids can't go to school. And so this is a real thing. And we've been living in this little bubble. And it's just like, wait, wait, wait. 
we have been gra grabbing onto the wrong things for our identity. Our identity is only in Jesus. Jesus. It's Jesus. You don't act like you're the world because you're no longer part of the world. You know who you are. There's a, there's a quote. I don't know who, who wrote it because it was uh, something that was forwarded to me from Facebook. That was Facebook. From, so, you, but this is a good quote. It says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is... No, that's... I'm sorry. The, that This is Romans. For the, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I'll talk about Facebook in a moment. Number four is this, though. Like Jesus, we must stay on mission. We must stay on purpose. We must stay focused. Now the quote. One of the most tragic things we could do with our lives would be to coast through it without intentionally living for God. If you're more concerned about comfort and ease and 401ks and all that other stuff, maybe you're not living intentionally for God and that will be a waste of your life. Now, I had read that David Cassidy, who made a lot of quotes, by the way. You remember David Cassidy, the Partridge family and all that? Son of Shirley, what's her name, and Jack Cassidy. Shirley Jones, that's it, thank you. We were alive watching the Partridge family, right? At the end of his life, it's reported that he said this, I wasted my life. Now I went and I tried to search that. Because I remember reading it like three years ago. I, I tried to search for it. I found a whole bunch of his quotes, but I didn't find that quote. So I can't say for sure that, that David Cassidy said that. But what was interesting, in my Google search, I found out that there are lots of people that were saying the same thing. I wasted my life. I wasted my life. I was concerned about the wrong things. I wasted my life. I made no impact in the world. So let me read that quote again. One of the most tragic things we could do with our lives would be to coast through it without intentionally living for Jesus. If you're living for Jesus, you are having an impact. You are fulfilling your mission. You have purpose. Jesus said, I must be in my father's house. I must be in my father's house. Well, I'm not saying go out and find a purpose because you know who your purpose is? Your purpose is Jesus. Love the, Lord with, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And the other, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I tell you what, if you just try to accomplish that mission, you're going to be so busy, you're not going to need to find another mission. You're not going to, oh, I'm done. I've loved God. I've loved my neighbor. I'm done. I've fulfilled my purpose on life. No. This is one that's going to go on and on and on. And it's about grace in me and grace through me. I love God, and that means I want to love other people. Those are, those are your, your missions, your, your, your purpose statement. Holy, a holy transformational life, loving God and others, is a life with a purpose. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote a kind of a long article, 
by Peter Heck, but it's worth it. And I'm, I'm going to cut it in half. But he says this, there's a consequence to having a mind transformed to Christ, one where you take every thought captive and make it obedient to him. The real world effect of such a perspective is, is that you often feel completely out of place trying to make sense out of worldly solutions and the manif... I can't even pronounce the word he uses, manifestations of earthly power. And then he goes on and he says, okay, Joe Biden was asked, what's the number one threat to America? And on this day he said, it's white supremacy. And then the next day he, what's the greatest threat? It's global warming. And then the next day, his chief joint of staff said, uh, no, it's not. It's Russia and it's China. Those are the people that, is, that pose the biggest threat to uh, America. And then he goes up and it says this. So white supremacy, climate change, as well as geopolitical threats from China and Russia. And he says, this is what I meant about feeling like a stranger living in a strange land because I can't make sense out of that. He says, now don't, under, don't misunderstand me. I think China and Russia are indeed rivals and, and with great potential to cause damage to the global dominance of the United States. And white supremacy, where it exists, is outdated, gross, and it's evil. But he says this, but looking around at the whole of American society, it's mind-boggling to me that anyone can conclude that any one of those things are even in the same zip code as the most serious problems people face. As a student of the word, as one who works daily to transform my mind to the fathers, as a man desperately seeking to conform my will to Christ, I come away from every one of these interviews, speeches, and pronouncements with the feeling that I'm watching blind boxers hopelessly hurling fists through the air, hoping to land a punch. And they're not even coming close. And then this is where it gets good. This is what he says. This is our problem. American society is an outright rebellion to God in his moral order. We are in the midst of a month where we celebrate our pride in something God tells us will destroy a person, both physically and spiritually. Adultery is almost expected these days. Love is tragically confused with lust. And the heartbreaking rubble of broken commitments and shattered homes are left in the wake. Children are fatherless and motherless at record rates, being raised by a world of social technology that fuels vice and violence. Racism, having once been relegated to the dark corners of society's cellars of discarded ideas, is suddenly surging back into popularity. Greed, pride, idolatry, depravity, and sensuality have seemingly become the only American values that unite all of us today. But we're supposed to believe that a new Chinese jet, a Russian class of submarines, the Ku Klux Klan, or slightly warmer submers represent the most serious issue threatening the stability of our civilization? He says, it's inexplicable short-sightedness. Those who lead us today won't address our fundamental problem of sin or even acknowledge it. Do you hear what he's saying? He says, the problem with our nation is that it's immoral. That's what's wrong with our nation. 
and look over here while something else is going on. Look over here while something else is, and what is that other stuff going on? Just blatant immorality. It has come to that point. Well, he goes on. He said, these figures embody the words that meant that our leadership, Republican, Democrat, local, state, federal, he says this, these figures embody the words of the prophet Ezekiel who warned, they have eyes to see but do not see and ears to hear but do not hear. Which means it's up to us to those of us who do see and do hear, to move forward to be modern day Noah's. That's interesting. That's his call, his clarion call. You need to be a Noah. He said, you need to be standing at the steps of the ark, facing mockery and derision, and preach righteousness. If America has any hope, that's it. That goes back to that mission. That goes back to what, what we, we were talking about. That, wait, I have a purpose. And even though I'm just a human, God can teach me and I can grow and I can learn and I can make a significant change and lead and tell others about Jesus. And number five is this, almost anticlimactic, but it's not. We grow when we're submissive. That's the last fill in the blank. We grow when we're submissive. And that attitude was first found in Jesus. And so here's this little itty-bitty passage about Jesus. And what's the takeaway? That our identity and purpose, just like Jesus found his identity and purpose because he had to get to the temple. He had to be in his father's house. He had to be busy doing the things that he saw his father doing. That's our identity and that's our purpose. And the world is changing rapidly and we better wake up or we're going to be found not in the right place. Father God, I thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for our identity. I thank you that we are Jesus lovers. And Father, that is, man, that is what it's about. Following you to the end. Beating on the gates of hell. Because even the gates of hell cannot keep the gospel out. Father, there are gates of hell all over Las Cruces that do not want the gospel message in their gates. And you have given us a mission and a power to go and to knock on those doors and to bust through them and let the power of Christ transform this nation, our community, our families. But let it start with us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.